Over the last several weeks and months, we've been moving through the Exodus. Uh, we come this morning to the 24th chapter of Exodus. So if you place your bulletin or a bulletin insert in your Bibles, our complimentary passage is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. So with your Bibles open to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 26, in honor of God's word, please stand. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, hear God's word. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 24, continuing in the reading of God's word. And he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction." So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the glory covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the glory covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. 
Thus far in the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching and the hearing of Your Word, we pray that You would make us alive by this Word and to this Word. In Christ's name, Amen. Please be seated. So if there's one endeavor that is common to humanity, it is the quest for the good life. All religions, all philosophies, pretty much all economies, all political philosophies. What is the good life? Is it more stuff? Is it living in harmony with nature? Is it prestige and climbing your way to the top of the rat pack? What is the good life? What is it that we aspire to? And I think if we step back just a little bit from that more general question, what we're asking when we say what is the good life is really how can we best walk in harmony with creation. Because the good life doesn't mean every single one of us become multi-billionaires and the President of the United States or whatever. The good life, walking in harmony with our purpose, with creation, is going to look very different for each one of us. For some, it might be blue-collar labor. For others, it might be working at home full-time. For others, it might be business. For others, it might be law, medicine, politics. There's a whole host of ways in which we pursue what is good. But I think as Christians, particularly, if we recognize that that human pursuit of what is the good life, is really a pursuit of harmony with God and with His purposes, then we can begin to answer that question a little bit better for ourselves and hopefully for others. Now the passage that we have been in this morning, remember the children of Israel have come to Mount Sinai and they've camped here at the foot of Mount Sinai and there are seven sections that begin in Exodus chapter 18 and run through Numbers in chapter 9. Seven sections of this covenant that God makes with His people. The first is the bridal covenant. In Exodus chapter 18, He says, You've seen how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I drew you unto Myself. This tender lover's language of inviting the people into this relationship with Him. And that relationship, that marriage covenant, is what we know as the Ten Commandments. It's in that context that God gives the law from Mount Sinai. And then He gives an appearance of Himself. Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. But... The children of Israel are still camped here at Mount Sinai, and so we have this second portion, the second of the seven sections that take place here at this mountain, and that is the book of the covenant. And that picks up in Exodus chapter 21, and it goes through the end of Exodus chapter 23. 
And basically, it's how do you live the Ten Commandments in relationship with each other? What do the Ten Commandments look like in terms of how we treat other people? Those people that are our brothers and our sisters. And so now we've come to the end of this book of the covenant. And again, we're going to see this theophany. But before we get to the appearance of God here in Exodus chapter 24, there are three elements that I want you to note in the text. We'll move through these elements very, very quickly, Lord willing. But I want you to notice these three elements that come out of Exodus chapter 24 that I think will do worlds of good in terms of focusing us on that question of how do we walk in perfect harmony with God? How do we walk according to his ways? What is the good life? And the first thing you're going to notice in this text is that God requires a mediator. You'll notice as we read through the text, he doesn't call the children of Israel into his presence. He doesn't even call the elders. He requires a mediator. The second thing that we'll see from this text is that God does invite into a relationship. The language of this text is not, here's the legal code. Let me give you an example. I do not enter into a relationship with a police officer when he pulls me over for doing 90 in a 25. Now, I enter into some sort of a quote-unquote relationship. It usually would involve or... Theoretically, I promise, it theoretically would involve me being spread-eagled and handcuffed and all that sort of stuff. But this relationship that we see in Exodus chapter 24 is not that kind of a relationship of a lawgiver to his citizen. But rather, it's a familial relationship. God invites the elders to sit down and eat with him. And then thirdly, so we see first that God requires a mediator. Secondly, that God invites into a relationship. And then thirdly, we will look at this beautiful nugget of the image of God that's seen here in the text. So God requires a mediator. I think this is one of the most challenging realities for American evangelical Christianity. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is one of the greatest challenges of Christianity as a whole, is how do you live faithfully in relationship with God? For some, and it goes all the way back to, you know me, you know I love Augustine, and I quote Augustine, and I read Augustine. But there was one place Augustine got it really, really wrong. A number of places, but one in particular. One of Augustine's sayings, is, I would not believe the gospel if the church did not preach it to me. And there ought to be something in there that kind of rings, eh, I don't know about that one. (laughs) I appreciate Augustine's high view of the church. 
I appreciate that Augustine had a, had a good, solid understanding of the church and the importance of the church and all of that. But you are not going to enter into relationship with God through following the rituals of an institution. Going to church, doing church, isn't the relationship. And you kind of know this at the DNA level. You kind of know this already. You know that there are times when you can say, yeah, I've gone to church every week for the past month, but my life is dry. I am feeling barren in terms of my walk with the Lord. So here on the one hand, we've got this one extreme, and on the other hand, we've got the other extreme, which is you don't need the church. Just enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. Your WWJD bracelet is all you need. It's just a constant reminder that you're supposed to do whatever Jesus would do, and you've got a personal relationship with Jesus, and there ain't no man that is ever going to stand between you and God. That's the American gospel. That's the American version. God does not invite the children of Israel into a personal relationship with Him. He invites Moses. God always works through this mediator. This knowledge of God, this intimacy of God, is always mediated. And beloved, that's a key point. You get that drilled into your head. And it's going to be a guard against a lot of rather silly things. Such as God speaking to you personally. You having some inner vision. God mediates His relationship. He engages you mediatorially. And the relationship through which he mediates. I just mangled that sentence. Anyway, the way in which he mediates his relationship, the knowledge that you have of him, is his word. If you want to hear a word from God, pick this thing up. Don't sit in your closet burning candles and humming to yourself. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And here is where God speaks. He works through mediators. And He works through Moses to reveal Himself to the children of Israel. He works through His Word to reveal His will for you and for your salvation. He works through the church in order to bring the gospel to the nations. He invites people to become members of the bride of Jesus Christ, which is His church. All of these things are ways in which you and I not only are guarded from stupid things, 
but also we're built up. Because we need that word. We need that community. We need that mediatorial relationship. You find God. You find His will. You find His presence in His word and amongst His people. That's not flashy. It's not exciting. It's not lightning splitting the skies and God opening up and speaking to you one-on-one. But it is real. And it is the way in which God will engage. In the way in which you and I can engage with God. God works through a mediator. But secondly, this mediator relationship is not over against entering into personal relationship. You know, I I think I mentioned in the announcements today, the very first conflict that you ever see in the Pilgrim's Progress, the very first conflict is between Christian and the young man who is accompanying him, pliable. And they get into a debate over what the gospel is. And Christian keeps saying, listen, the reason that you want to press for righteousness, the reason that you want to press for the celestial city is because of this weight of guilt, of sin, that is weighing you down, will be answered in the cross. And Pliable basically says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've got no weight of sin. I got no guilty conscience, but I'm looking for the stuff. I'm looking for the the pleasant journey. I'm looking for the streets of gold. I'm looking for the marriage feast of the Lamb. I'm looking for all of these good things. And the first obstacle that they run into is what causes Pliable to say, if this is what your faith is, I don't want any part of it. So how important is the issue of sin? How important, how foundational to this relationship with God is that issue that Christian and Pliable are debating? Well, our text is very visual. Look at verses 6 through 8. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar... Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Guys, this was a gross day. Just imagine. (laughs) This wasn't just a single chicken. These were oxen. These were big animals. And this was at least more than one big animal. This is a lot of blood. And Moses takes a basin of blood and throws it up against the altar. Imagine you're standing there looking at this. Ugh, that was a bit shocking. Okay. And then he turns around with the other half of the blood and throws it on you. 
Oh, gross! What is this? This is a shocking and offensive sign. I promise you, (laughs) I promise you, people are just like you and I today. I promise you, people were standing there going, what did you just do? What is this? I just washed my robe. (laughs) It's my nice brown robe. And I got blood all over it. But it's absolutely essential for God. It is absolutely essential that you and I know that that blood is central to our walking in harmony with God. All the way back from day one, literally, when God said to Adam, you can eat all the fruit, all the trees of the garden except for this one. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam saw that it was good for food. Eve took and ate. She gave it to him and he ate also. From that moment on, mankind has been under a death penalty. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has been born dead in trespasses and sin and under penalty of death. That blood is not just that God gets kicks out of gross things. It is absolutely essential because it is absolutely at the core. You will walk in harmony with God only to the degree that you recognize that that blood, that death that you deserve can only be the basis of your relationship with God. His requirements remain the same. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 doesn't do away with the sacrifices. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Beloved, this disgusting, and offensive ritual is the one and only thing that can make you to be at peace with God. Before I move on, get that image in your mind. Moses throwing basins full of blood on all the people. What's offensive about that? Be honest. If, if, 
if I did that right now, as a as an illustration of the sermon, I got me a big old bucket of cow's blood and splattered it all across all of you. That would be offensive, right? It would be shocking. But what is the shocking nature of it? Is it not that I've done something to you that is disgusting? What should be the shocking nature of it? That you and I have done something to God that is so disgusting that this is the only recourse. Do you see that? And then do you see just how messed up we are? (laughs) If Moses threw a bunch of blood on me, I would be offended. But it probably wouldn't be because I realized this is the only way. This is what I've done to God. This is what I deserve. And I must have a substitute. The offense of my sin far too often is not, first and foremost, the offense of having my sin pointed out. That is first and foremost. God invites us into a relationship, and that relationship is based upon the blood. Thirdly and finally, we see God's image. In verses 10 and 11, they saw the God of Israel, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And then he invites the men, the chief men of the people in Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. Don't you love that image? That, that image of eating and drinking, of feasting, that's an image of peace. That's an image of reconciliation. That's an image of harmony. You know, when you, when, you, when you have trouble with somebody and you're wanting to meet with them, what do you do? Let's go out for coffee. Come over to my house. We'll grill. Let's sit down. Let's, let's just, let, let's have a conversation. Food throughout the scriptures, and I think just in human culture generally, is a sign of, of fellowship, of harmony. The, the, the sapphire stones, John Calvin comments on this, and he says how, how, how marvelous it is that the same people who just weeks earlier are slaves making bricks without straw now see their God standing upon bricks that are sapphire. The color of the sky brings in the imagery that Isaiah brings. Of the earth is my throne and heaven is my footstool. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mark not just of the majesty of God, but of the glory of His redemption of Israel. There's also a progress as we will see through these images of God. First, we have the darkness at the end of Exodus chapter 21, that first section of the of the Sinai Covenant Treaty. We have darkness, now we're progressing. We've got the feet and standing on the blue sapphire. And we'll see as we move on, Lord willing, through the rest of this Sinai Covenant. 
At the end of each one of these sections, there's a progressing appearance of God until finally Moses comes to the place where he says, Lord, I want to see your face. Of course, we know how that turns out, but we'll save it until we get there. But beloved, that's the story of redemption. Is God continuing to reveal Himself? Continuing to reveal His character, continuing to reveal His face until this community meal. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much New Testament here. The Lord's Supper, this Passover meal that Christ calls you and me into. This meal of peace that has come as a result of the blood that is sprinkled both against the altar, showing God against His holy altar, a life has been killed. A life has been shed. That blood requirement is right there. And also showing you and me, I am the one who needs that blood. And that blood has been shed. And so, like the elders, you and I can sit down and we can be at peace with God and we can have communion with Him. And that progression of the, of the revelation of God that, that really begins there with the thick darkness and now to the feet standing on sapphire and progressing on, I think finds its culmination right here in the meal. The bread and the wine most beautiful image that you and I have of Jesus Christ. The most beautiful reminder, the means by which we are strengthened in our walk with Him is a symbol both of death, bodies broken and blood poured out, but also nourishment, bread, celebration, wine, a marriage feast, And through all of this, God's image, He shows Himself to you. He shows Himself. Beloved, the children of Israel are doing an awful lot of wandering. They're doing an awful lot of questioning. They're going through an awful lot of hard things. But with this God with them, with this God to guide them, this God who enters into relationship with them, this God who comforts them. Their journey is one to a land of promise. And beloved, God will sustain, just as He sustained His children, just as He sustained Israel, He will sustain you. The last thing I want to mention as we think of the image of God The Apostle John, in his first epistle, just really plays with this whole idea of God's image. He opens his epistle with with the words, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands. The, 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 The image of God in his appearing, John fleshes out in that epistle, but then listen to verses 7 through 12, where we read, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest. In other words, appeared, made visible. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, hear these words, because I love that. I hope you love that. That's the gospel. But hear these words. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's the implication there? If you want to see God, look at his people. And specifically look at the love that they have for one another. That's where God will be seen gloriously. That's where God will be seen clearly. Is in his church, his bride, you, loving one another. Exodus chapter 24 really does get to the core issue of what is the good life. Because what is the good life is better summarized in how do I walk in harmony with God, with His purposes, whatever God you imagine Him to be. But the God of the Bible, the God who is the God who created heaven and earth, and when I say whatever God you imagine Him to be, I mean because it doesn't matter what God you're worshiping, you still are wanting to figure out how to live right. How to get live the good life. Now the problem is we go after false gods. There is only one. And Jesus Christ is His appearing. He is the Son of God. And He is the one who has shown us truth and light. He's the one who is the mediator. The perfect mediator. He is the one whose blood is not just sprinkled on the altar, but it is sprinkled upon you. He is the one who invites you into relationship. And He's the one who then invites you in that relationship to display Him to the rest of the world. That is a high calling. It's a glorious calling. But beloved, it is the answer to nothing less than What is the good life? Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these beautiful pictures of Christ, of your mercy and grace, of our sin and our need for a Savior. And Lord, we thank you that they're not just pictures, but they are true and right and good. Help us, Lord, to grow up into them. In Christ's name. Amen.